You're listening to a sermon from Ketchikan Church of the Nazarene. For more sermons or information about our church, please visit ktnnaz.org or like Ketchikan Naz on Facebook. That's Bumblebee. Yes, yes it is Bumblebee. He's one of my favorites. See, of all days to remember to dismiss children, children are not being dismissed today, so go figure that one. Children, you are staying with us today. And we are excited to have you guys in the service with us. This morning, um, we're going to talk just briefly about Transformers, because I'm that guy who likes Transformers, and it somehow loosely applies to the sermon today, so just bear with me. Um, when, uh, when I was watching that video today, I, I googled Transformers costumes, because there are some really, I mean, just amazing Transformer costumes that people smarter than me have put together um, there was one that was a street performer that the wheels actually worked, so he could drive as the car and then it transform into Bumblebee, and it was the coolest thing I've ever seen. Um, there is something, as I, we watched in the video, the kids were just enthralled, but in case you didn't hear the kids around you or behind you, the kids were like, <gasps> you know, because they knew what was coming. They knew that something was about to change, that that car wasn't just a car, but that car was something more than a car. That car was a robot inside of a car. And that's just cool to the kid inside of me. Um, I, uh, I grew up with the 1984 to 88, 89 Transformers cartoon series on TV. Um, loved the Transformers because um, they, they just had this potential to become something really awesome. They had this potential to not just be the normal everyday, but to be something that was cooler than the normal everyday. I owned Transformers toys. I saved up my money and I bought them. This, this is the model that I own. This was my favorite Transformer toy. Not Optimus Prime, strangely. I didn't own him. Um, this is, uh, anybody know this one? Yes, thank you. Mm, brothers, okay. Uh, this is, yeah, okay. We're going to talk later. This is good. Um, this is Starscream. He was uh, one of my favorites to own. Um, because uh, he was a fighter jet, first of all. I mean, that's just cool. He actually had missiles that would launch, um, which was also doubly cool. This is who he transformed into, um, right? Whoa. Um, and uh, and I, I cannot tell you the number of hours I spent playing with my Transformers because, oh, man, they were just, it was so much fun to have two kinds of toys in one toy. Um, and, and there was the excitement when you'd get that new Transformer. Maybe you have no idea what I'm talking about. You're going, man, he's a nerd. Okay, it's true. But when you'd get that package and you'd rip the cardboard off the back of the package and it was like a tank or it was a car or it was a plane and you go, I can't wait to figure out how to transform this into something else. And it was, some of them were difficult um, to learn how to transform them. I'm getting head nods. Thank you. Um, to, to learn how to transform them into what they were. But once you learned, you could transform them with ease into something that was totally cool. So um, we want to talk about transformation this morning. This is kind of the tie-in, okay? Transformers to transformation. Um, here's how we're going to do it. We're going to talk about um, the transfiguration of Jesus. Now, please don't assume that I am saying that Jesus is a robot, um, that Jesus uh, is... Um, uh, in a, I'm just making a loose analogy that I like Transformers and Jesus is transforming us. Okay, so we'll roll with that today. Um, if you would flip to Matthew chapter 17, we're going to read the transfiguration of Jesus, a passage that, frankly, some pastors don't want to preach on. When I got to it, I thought, oh, no, how do I handle this? Because 
what are you supposed to do with this passage and how does this apply to our lives today? I wrestled with it all week long and um, I believe the Lord has laid on my heart a good message for, uh, for me and then hopefully for you guys as well. So if you are all in um, Matthew chapter 17, um, would you go ahead and do God the favor this morning? We need to get into this habit of standing when we hear the word of the Lord read. Um, I've been convicted of that as we studied in Nehemiah, that they stood when the word of the Lord was read. We should do that as well. So, Matthew chapter 17, we're going to go verses 1 through 13. Six days afterwards, remember Jesus uh, said, take up your cross and follow. So six days after that, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up a high mountain by themselves, and then he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sunshine, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we're here. If you wish, I will make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And as he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And then the disciples heard this. They fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came over and touched them, saying, Rise, have no fear. And when they lifted their eyes, they saw only Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Don't tell anyone about this vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And then the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. And this is the word of the Lord this morning. You may have a seat. Let's pray. Ask the Lord to help us understand this difficult passage this morning. Lord, Uh, We've read your word this morning. We've read of a great mystery and miracle. uh, You taking a few disciples up on a mountain and and changing before their very eyes into something completely unearthly that they had not seen before. Lord, it's not something that we've seen with our own eyes, and sometimes it can be difficult to comprehend things we've not seen or touched or tasted or heard. Lord, you've given us this great history, this great word from you to encourage our hearts to tell us that we might have hope because of this story. Lord, would you open our hearts and our minds to your word this morning? Would you reveal to us what you would have us hear from your very heart? And we pray this in your name. Amen. All right. We're going to step through this verse by verse, okay? So in, I'm just going to put the verses up here so you can follow along with me. Matthew 17, 1 through 2. Uh, Jesus took Peter, James, and John to a high mountain, and then he was transfigured before them. Now, um, I think that it's interesting. We need to point out the last thing Jesus said before this passage, even though six days have elapsed. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, he took um, Peter, James, and John up to the mountain. Okay, The rest of the disciples stayed down below and didn't see this experience. Of the 12 disciples... 11 of them would see the Son of Man coming in glory before they died. One of them would not. Which one didn't? Judas. Judas died before 
He saw Jesus come and return in glory. He died before Jesus died. He hung himself. Jesus is stated of prophecy and then fulfilled it six days later. Okay? So, the word transfigured in this passage, it's a Greek word, um, metamorpho. Okay? Metamorpho. And it means to transform. We get the word in English, metamorphosis, from this word. So, when you use the word metamorph or morph, or Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, okay? It's all derivatives of the same Greek word, metamorphu, okay? It means to transform. At its base, it just means to change, to transform. And so to understand the transfiguration, you kind of have to stretch your mind past what is earthly, okay? Because when it says he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. The Greek um, gives heavy emphasis on this stuff because the brilliance of the light that it took on was the very nature of light. It's not like Jesus put a flashlight under his robe and glowed with that kind of light. The very nature and characteristic of light is what Jesus became himself. Um, Because we know in Scripture, Scripture tells us God is light. And so Jesus transformed into this brilliance that was the very nature of light itself. Um, In this moment, the infinite fullness of the Holy Spirit was revealed through the entire being of Jesus and the heavenly glory of his nature, which at this point had been concealed by the earthly body of Jesus. It was like the veil was torn back and all of a sudden those three disciples could see Jesus for who he was if he was in heaven in that moment. The full glory of God was displayed in that moment. Um, Jesus' face shined like the sun. Now, it's a strange analogy because the brightest thing that we know is the sun, okay? And so when the disciples were trying to explain this unearthly brightness that had never before really truly been revealed in this way, it was like the sun. It was like when you stare into the sunshine and you get those dots when you stare away because you burned your retinas just a little bit. They were saying Jesus was like that, was brighter than that. Everything about that super brilliant light that you see on a sunny day rarely in Ketchikan, um, Jesus was exponentially beyond that light. But all they had to compare him to was the sun. It was the brightest light they had. The light that he was eclipsed everything else on the Mount of Transfiguration. His clothes became white as light because of the light shining out of Jesus from the inside. And the whiteness of his clothes, Mark says this, the whiteness of Jesus' clothes is beyond any whiteness that the earth can accomplish on its own. So there is a whole spectrum of range of color of white that we have never seen with our eyes. And Jesus is this brilliant kind of white light. And for a brief moment, for a brief time, heavenly glory broke into humanity in a complete way. And these three disciples were able to see Jesus as who he really is in his fullness. He is fully man, but he is fully God. And in that moment, that was revealed to them. That's kind of a jaw-dropping experience when you see Jesus as he really is. It's happened a few other times in Scripture. Moses saw the glory of God, but only as the glory of God passed by him on the mountain, right? So he saw the backside of God, so not the fullness of God there. He saw the backside of God, and because of that, um, 
Moses' face shined with the reflected glory of God. Can you imagine seeing a light so bright that your body actually shines afterwards because of that reflection? That was Moses' experience. Um, Priests who worshipped and ministered in the temple and the tabernacle, they would enter the Holy of Holies. The one priest, the high priest, would enter the Holy of Holies where the Shekinah glory of God, the, the great light of the glory of God would dwell in that Holy of Holies. And, and if, um, if they weren't right with God before they went in, they died instantaneously because the glory of God is so white and so bright and so pure and so holy that sin can't exist there. Um, Saul, on the road um, to persecute Christians, saw the glory of God revealed. When Jesus came and spoke to Saul and his name became Paul, and he saw Jesus and he went blind because of the glory of God revealed to him. There have been multiple times in Scripture where people have seen partial revelations of the glory of God. And this moment of transfiguration is a kind of a fullness that has not yet happened or has happened at this point in Scripture where they could actually see in this brightness, the glory of God. It is an unparalleled moment in history where they saw the full glory of God and they didn't die in its presence. It was a great miracle and it was meant to encourage them and strengthen them and cause them to have a holy fear and worship of God in a new way, to call them to persevere regardless of what might come because when you have encountered the living God in such a powerful way, you cannot escape unchanged from that. You will be forever changed after encountering God. So, there they are. Jesus is shining like something that has never shined before. And then, I mean like, but wait, there's more kind of thing. But wait, there's more. And behold, that's what that means. But wait, there's more. Moses and Elijah showed up. Like the two powerhouses of the Old Testament age. It's as if the dazzling transformation of Jesus' appearance wasn't enough. Matthew wants to point out two additional figures. By the way, you got Jesus and Moses and Elijah, the two most prominent prophets from the two divisions of the Old Testament, the law and the prophet. Moses represents the law. um, Elijah represents the prophets. They are, in Old Testament and Judaism, the two chief representatives of the Old Covenant. They were the forerunners of the Messiah and the messianic ministry that Jesus was bringing into full effect. Interestingly enough, it's these two, Moses and Elijah, that are mentioned in the closing verses of the Old Testament prophetic literature. Quote, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and the awesome day of the Lord comes. And that's in Malachi 4, 4 through 5. So the very last closing moments of the Old Testament history that we have mention Moses and Elijah as the preeminent ones that are going to um, uphold the law and the prophet. By appearing with Moses and Elijah, Jesus is being distinguished from them. He is being distinguished as not just their equal, but as greater than the greatest two people that Judaism ever knew about. But why these saints? Why these two particular people? Jewish tradition revered these two equal to, perhaps even higher than the Messiah, 
which is why the preference for the law in the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day took preeminence over Jesus' ministry of grace because the law and the prophets, Moses and Elijah. And so when they showed up on the mountain, it was kind of saying, listen, they're great and they were forerunners, but Jesus is the one shining with brilliant light, not Moses and Elijah. Jesus is the one whose God's glory is being revealed through. Moses and Elijah don't have that same kind of emphasis. Things we need to know about Moses and Elijah. They were both Old Testament men. Okay, that's the kind of basic thing. At the basic, most basic level, the story of Moses and the story of Elijah is the story of Christ. Continuous with all previous revelation and redemptive history, Christ is the new chapter of the same book. He's not a new book. He's the continuation of what Moses and Elijah have been doing. Moses and Elijah were Old Testament prophets. Okay? They were both Old Testament prophets who performed signs and wonders. They were both Old Testament prophets who spoke with God and saw his glory on a mountain. They were both Old Testament prophets whose graves cannot be identified. This sounds a little bit like the ministry of Jesus. Jesus was a prophet. He was a prophet who performed signs and wonders. He was a prophet who spoke with God and was the glory of God on the mountainside. And... About the grave, well, Moses, um, God buried him in an unknown location. To this day, no clue where Moses is buried. Elijah, well, he didn't have a grave because God said, why don't you just come on up to heaven? One of two occurrences that I'm aware of in scripture where someone went up to heaven without passing away. And then there's Jesus who, well, you know, he didn't stay in his grave. Um, He rose from the dead to give us a hope of eternal life as well. Moses, Elijah, and Jesus are powerhouses But when it comes down to brass tacks, Jesus is the one who is the glory of God revealed to mankind. So we worship him alone. And in that moment, he's got three Jewish guys up on a mountain. And Jesus is saying, Moses and Elijah are great, but I'm the one. I'm the bright and shining light. I'm the hope for the future. They represent, therefore, not the law and the prophets, but the whole prophetic trajectory of the Old Testament, which is going to yield to the finality and the glory of of the prophet who is greater than Moses and who will ascend into heaven like Elijah did. So, having spoken in the former days through the prophets, God is now going to give us his son and he's going to say, quote, hear him. Listen to what he has to say. So on this mountain, just picture this, on this mountain, we have the first author of scripture, Moses. He wrote the first books, okay? The last author of scripture, John, who wrote the book of Revelation, okay? And the one of whom scripture speaks, Jesus himself. I think that's a neat bookend. I think God was doing something cool there when he's like, he's got Moses on the mountain and he's got John on the mountain. The the first and the last, the alpha and the omega, I think there's a picture there of what Jesus is trying to say about himself. I am the first and the last, the beginning and the end. The presence of Moses and Elijah doesn't just highlight that Jesus is greater than him or than them, but it highlights that they are in complete unity with Jesus. They're, they're talking with Jesus. What are they talking about? I have no clue. Only except I can imagine it's, hey, Jesus, we can't wait to see how you're going to bring this to an end. We can't wait for you to bring to completion all of the things that we have been working towards in our life. The presence of them shows that all of scripture, all of the leaders, all of the events, all of the histories, all of the everything 
led up to and confirm and worship and glorify that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is Messiah, and that he alone has the sole authority to bring about a new kingdom. He is the only one who can now do the ministry that needs to be done, which is the reconciliation of the world, a sinful world, to a holy God. So here, we've got all three of them talking, and I love Peter because he speaks before he thinks. He's impulsive. I relate to that. He says, hey, it's, it's great that I'm here on this mountain with you guys. This is so, um, I, you all need a temple, a tabernacle. You need a booth. Let me build you each a place in which we can identify each of you separately. Let me build you something special for each of you because you're all great in my mind. And I love, I love Peter because he wants to honor what's going on here. But he kind of jumps the gun a little bit because we're only worshiping Jesus. We're not worshiping um, Moses and Elijah. So what happens? While he's still speaking, God interrupts him. <laughs> While Peter is impulsive and saying, I've got to do something here in this moment. Well, uh, let's build booths. Um, God interrupts him. And, and a bright cloud overshadows them. And a voice from the cloud says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. So Peter, shush for just a moment. Close your mouth. You don't have to do. Quit being uh, a Martha. Just be a Mary for a moment. And listen to my son. Um, this word overshadowed, what does it mean? Anybody? What does it mean to overshadow something? Okay, thank you. It's honesty right there. So we live in, a, in an overshadowy land, right? Like the sun is out and then the clouds eclipse the sun and then we are in the shadow of, you know, the cloud, right? We don't have that direct light anymore. Literally to overshadow something just means to cast a shadow on it. I'm not trying to trick you here with anything super fancy. Um, it just means to cast a shadow, um, except in this passage um, where the word overshadow um, means to, uh, to have the proof of power and authority. This is the word that, that when it says a bright cloud overshadowed them, it means the full glory of God came in on that mountain in that moment to prove that God has the authority. The cloud was bright. It wasn't dark. This isn't like the clouds we see, weather clouds. This is a God cloud. It's the same glory that shone from Jesus' face and his clothes and his body. That's the kind of cloud that then sat on top of this mountaintop and enveloped them. This cloud um, was the same cloud that was present when Israel was wandering Egypt, right? And the pillar of cloud by day um, and the pillar of light by night. It's the same cloud, okay? It's the same glory of God. Um, it's the same glory of God and the light that indwells the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. It's the same one that dwells the Holy of Holies in the temple. This is the cloud of the glory of God that rested on Mount Sinai when Moses was going to get the Ten Commandments. Mary had been overshadowed, overshadowed, it says in Scripture. Mary was overshadowed by the full power and glory of God under the Shekinah glory, the direct light of God. It overshadowed the virgin, and it separated her from the ancient world for a brief, mysterical moment and brought her into the immediate divine presence of God, and Christ was conceived under the power of the Holy Spirit. The effect of the cloud was not to shade them from light or to darken any natural light that might be around them. This cloud, this overshadowing, was to envelop the disciples for a time, to separate them from the rest of the world in this 
wrapped up holiness of God, in the direct presence and communication with God. It was something that we can only get to experience when we get to heaven in its fullness, but they got to experience the fullness right then and there to overshadow them and separate them and envelop them. On the one hand, it was doing that from the immediate bodily vision of Jesus because Jesus was so bright it will overtake them. And the brightness, our bodies, our mortal bodies just can't handle the full brightness of God. So there was a protection on one hand. And on the other hand, um, they were being ushered away from the profane world, protected in God's holiness, separated for just a brief moment. This was also the same cloud that was present when Jesus was born and the same cloud that was present when Jesus ascended after his resurrection to be seated at the right hand of the Father. This this is a powerful glory display of God. And out of that cloud boomed the voice, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Where else have we heard that coming from a cloud? The baptism of Jesus, right? So, so here's the thing. Jesus' ministry began at his baptism, right? He came um, out, got baptized, and then went into the wilderness. His ministry began. The voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. His ministry begins. Now, we have a turning point. Same words, same clouds, same glory of God. Where is Jesus about to head? He's about to head to Jerusalem. From this point forward, he's going to be talking about his death, his burial, and his resurrection like he has never talked about before because he is singularly focused on the cross. This moment in history is when the glory of God comes into mankind's history, intersects with it, and says... Now something is going to be done different. Now the law and the prophets that have been building towards something, it is Jesus. And now his new ministry of reconciliation for the world is going to really uh, take feet. Okay, so, verse 6. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified, right? Because when the voice of God booms from heaven, what's the only option you have? Fall on your face and be terrified. Rise up and have no fear is what Jesus said. And when they lifted their eyes, it was only Jesus that was there. So, like, that's a whirlwind of, what, 10 minutes, 20 minutes? I don't know what the time frame was. These disciples had this fear. They fell on their face, and they worshipped God in fear. So, the fear of God is here both a realistic fear of, they knew from tradition that people die in God's presence. There's a fear there. But they also have this reverent worship fear that God has been gracious to them and has not done away with them in his presence. So there's this worshipful fear that comes out of this. It says, I am so in awe of the power and the holiness of God, and the only way I can respond to that is to fall on my face and worship. So the disciples were a little bit scared in their worship, and Jesus does what he does best. He does the ministry of touch, and he just walks up to him and he puts his hands on them. He says, rise, you don't need to be fearful here. That's the glory of God wrapped up in Jesus saying, don't have fear in my presence. He told them to get up, and then they got up. No one was there. The brilliant light had faded. Jesus had been wrapped back up in that, in that um, humanity that he is wearing, full humanity, glory of God. Then on their way down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, don't tell anyone what you've seen until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Don't say anything about this. Until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. See, the disciples that were not up on the mountain with him and the rest of the world would have a hard time understanding this great glory, this great transformation that had undergone. 
um, until they had witnessed the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus said, don't, don't jump the gun here. Peter, I'm sure he was looking at Peter. Don't, don't jump the gun, man. Wait for the right time. Jesus had entrusted this great kingdom sneak peek to three disciples. Three disciples got this sneak peek. And they were faithful to what they had said. They kept their word until after the death and resurrection of Jesus. But as soon as that happened, they opened their mouth. And they were able to speak freely of that day, that moment that they saw the transfiguration. Because you can't encounter that experience and not be changed for the rest of your life. So they had to hold on to that special moment inside until they had the okay to share. And then they couldn't help but share it. Outside the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called synoptic gospels because they, they're pretty much parallel. They tell the same story. It sounds kind of identical. You can read from one to the other and be okay. John's out in left field. He's not in part of the synoptic gospels. He's like the hippie gospel and then the synoptic gospels, okay? So um, the three synoptic gospels, outside of the account of the transfiguration, you find only one direct reference to the transfiguration, and there is one veiled reference to the transfiguration in Scripture. That's it. You've got the accounts in the gospel. There's two, uh, Matthew and Mark. Okay, and then you've got um, then you've got these two outside of uh, outside of um, the gospels. The first one is in Second Peter because Peter was on the mountain, right, when that happened. So this is his eyewitness account. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His Majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter's saying, listen, I'm not telling you lies. I was, I was there. I was wrapped in the cloud. I heard the voice. I saw the bright shininess. I was there and saw Jesus who we know to be man, but I saw him as God and his glory was revealed that's his eyewitness testimony. Very direct, right? He's not pulling punches. Um, he's very, very honest about what he said. There's one more account. It's more veiled, but it's still there. And it's written by John, who was also happened to be on the mountain that morning. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And here's John's way, hippie gospel, saying... There is something mysterious that happened on that mountain and God and Jesus are one and it's glory and majesty and he is full of grace and truth because we did not die in his presence when we should have. That's awesome testimony from John. Now, Peter, James, and John were on the mountain. We've got Peter's testimony. We've got John's testimony. Now, I don't want you to think that I'm, I'm, I'm leaving um, James out here, uh, but he died before uh, he could give his written testimony account of this. Stephen was stoned in Acts as the first martyr. James died shortly thereafter as a martyr for Christ. So he didn't get to write his account, but he lived it out. And that's great testimony for us. So here's the big question. I'm going to wrap us up here in the next five minutes. What does this transfiguration of Jesus have to do with our life? We were on the mountain. We read the words, and it's great. Jesus showed himself to be God. We know he's God. So what's the point here? What are we supposed to take away from this? And I think it's in the, um, the response of the disciples who were there. If you remember, the word transfigured in Greek is the word metamorpho, 
means to transform, and we get our word metamorphosis from it, okay? That's the word. I want you to hold on to that metamorpho idea for a moment. Um, I think what we need to wrap our minds around is that we have a call to holiness, okay? Aside from the parallel passage in Mark chapter 2, which is the other account of the transfiguration, the word transfigured, metamorpho, is only used in Romans and 2 Corinthians. That's the only other time it's used. The two accounts when Jesus was transfigured, and then again, the very same and very rare word is used two more times. First in this passage. Oh, that doesn't show up great, does it? Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That is, by testing, you might discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Romans 12, 2. The same word that is used to describe how Jesus, his very nature changed from humanity to divinity on that mountain is the same word that is being used for disciples of Christ when it says, you are to be transformed. Your very nature is to change in the way that Christ revealed his nature. Humanity to divinity, and we are to be transformed in the same way. We were once something, but God makes us something else. He transforms us. The other passage that it is shown in is this. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. I like this verse because this verse tells us that we are to be transformed. We should be transformed. And I sit back and I go, I don't know how to do that. (laughs) I have no idea how to transform myself from a sinner to a not sinner from someone who lives an unholy and unpleasing life to someone who pleases God. I don't know how to do that. But then there's this verse, with unveiled face, when we see Jesus, when we talk with him, when we worship him, when we read his word, and we behold the glory of the Lord, we cannot help but be transformed into the image of God, into that same image, into the glory and holiness that he is calling us to live. And it's from one degree of glory to another. It's a process. It's not instantaneous. It's over the course of one's life. The more one beholds glory of God in your life, the reading of word and scripture and fellowship and prayer, you get transformed one degree at a time. That one sin gets laid down. That one habit gets set aside. That one passion that you used to have that is not fruitful gets transformed over time from one degree of glory into another being made into the image that that we were made to be in the garden. The glory of God displayed as a pinnacle of creation, holy and perfect before our God. See, God does this transformational work in us. And it's not an outward action that we do, but an inward action that Christ does at the very deepest level of our being. Let me say this. It's not behavior modification. You are not changing your behavior. That is not a metamorpho. You do not change your behavior and become holy. God changes your heart, the very inside of you. There's a metamorpho, a transition that occurs inside of your soul because it's not what you do, but what was done for you that changes you. Happens one degree at a time. And you cannot meet Jesus and claim salvation and encounter the living God and not be changed by it. That's impossible. 
So we're called to this holy life. We're called to be transformed by the glory of God, for the glory of God, to live a holy and pleasing life for Him. But beyond that, there's the hope of glory. See, this is twofold. It's not just that we are called to live a holy life, but we have a hope that goes beyond that. The same idea of transformation, that same word, slightly different verb form, is used in Philippians and Corinthians. And this is the hope. This is the full realization of that transformation that we just talked about, of minute by minute, day by day, how do they phrase it, one degree of glory to another, day in and day out being transformed by Christ for Christ, leads us to the hope of glory. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The full verse says this, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Do you get this? This verse says that our citizenship is in heaven and that Jesus will transform our body to be like his glorious body. What? This is not what it's about. And I'm so thankful because I'm not six foot tall with muscles. This is not the be all end all that I will be. One day, I will see Jesus face to face, and I will behold him in glory, and whatever this is will go back to dust, and I will get a glorious body in heaven, and I don't know what it's going to look like, and I'm hoping for six foot tall with muscles and wings. Okay, I'm not going to lie, that's what I hope for, but I don't know what good Jesus has got in store for me. Okay? Um, we do know that we will be transformed. As we pursue holiness and allow God to transform our lives, our hope is that we will be citizens in heaven, transformed by his glory, living and worshiping him. And the glory of that body, guess what? No pain, no sorrow, no suffering, um, no sadness, no stubbed toes, no paper cuts, no stuffy noses, no death. None of that stuff exists. That's our hope and glory. But here's the other verse. And it doesn't all fit up on here. Here's the short version. Death, where is your victory? He doesn't have it anymore. Death, where is your sting? He doesn't have one. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Here's the whole verse. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust. That's our bodies. We shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. That's Jesus. I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. But behold, I want to tell you a mystery. We won't all sleep. We'll be changed. We'll be transformed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be all changed for this, imperishable, for this perishable body will put on the imperishable, and this mortal body will put on immortality. And the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortal. Then it shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through Lord Jesus Christ. So only three were there on the mountain that day. The offer of hope 
of a life lived in holiness and growing relationship with likeness and relationship with God, and then the hope of eternal life, freed from the shackles to live in that overshadowing glory of God day in and day out, that's open to all who would receive it. Even though only three were on the mountain, we all get to experience exactly what they experienced on that mountain. And we get to experience it in increasing degrees throughout our life. And then that day that we close our eyes and open them up in heaven, and we've got our new body, and somehow God does that mysterious thing, behold, it's a mystery, is what Scripture says. Well, that's just really exciting. Paul closes with this statement, so I will too. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, and knowing that the Lord your and knowing that in the Lord your God your labor is not in vain. What are you laboring for? One degree of holiness at a time. One step towards transformation with God, allowing him to work on your heart, allowing him to say, that's sin and I don't want it to have a part in your life. That's not a great behavior. You should repent of that. Allowing him to do that work in your life, knowing that you can live a life that pleases God here and now, knowing that one day the culmination of all of that means you get to behold God in all of the glory and splendor that we see displayed in Scripture. This is the hope that we have. This is what we hold on to. This is what we pursue. And we will be steadfast and immovable in it because there is no other way that we should live or die but in Christ. Amen? Why don't we pray and then sing some songs. Lord, we love you. You are our great God. And we want to worship you in the full glory and honor that you deserve. So, Lord, I pray as we sing these songs, we might kneel before you because maybe that's the posture of worship we need to take this morning. But we might stand with arms raised because maybe that's the posture of worship we need to take. We might need to go to the prayer wall and and confess or praise you, Lord. We just want to worship you freely, however it is that we need to. May you reconcile our hearts to your heart this morning, Father. And may we give you all the glory and praise and honor. And Lord, encourage our hearts to live a life that is holy and pleasing to you. And we pray this in your name. Receive the benediction. Christ is in glory right now in heaven. And that glory can be displayed in your life right now today. Take a hold of it and live as such. Amen? Amen. Go in peace.